Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello, good morning, welcome to our online gathering. My name is Andre, lead pastor here. As always, privileged to bring to you God's word this morning. Well, in recent times, we have observed that our live stream numbers have been steadily declining and we would like to be optimistic about it and figure that many of you are taking up our invitation of hosting watch parties in your home. So do me a favour today, if you are hosting a watch party at your home, there's a bunch of you there together, snap a picture, put it up on Facebook, put it up on your your Instagram, tag the church so that we know that you are alive and well, that you are watching the service and that we're not losing our church in this time. Well, if you're new and you've recently joined us, we are in the midst of a series of talks on the church. Uh, What does it mean to be the church in this time, especially when we are not able to gather together in a conventional sense? And what are the unique lessons and opportunities for the church in this time? And the question that we've come face to face in this time is uh, this question, whether we've been relying on our Sunday gathering, on our Sunday service, on the institution of a church far too much for our spiritual formation for a sense of mission, for the way we serve, love, learn and grow together. And now we've concluded uh, last week that the church isn't a building you go to, it isn't an event that you attend or an experience that you consume, but it is the people of God, it is the family of God together, the body of Christ united, intertwined, intricately woven together, serving one another, being dependent on one another. That is the vision of the church. The church isn't just an event that you show up for. It is the people of God, the family of God together, serving one another. And today we'll move on to another aspect of the church, which is really near and dear to my heart. Well, first off, you know, I think it will do us good to remember that the church isn't man's idea isn't a human invention but it is God's idea it's ordained by God in other words you know the church is not a kind of Christian club that we put together that we decided that man decided there was a good idea to form this thing called the church it is ordained by God when we read in the Bible the Bible says that the church owes its origin its origin story not to man but to God there is no such thing as the church were it not for the fact that God from all of eternity, had planned for these people to gather together to form this thing called the church. And so it will do us good, uh, especially when wrestling with some of these questions, to come back to a biblical definition, to a biblical understanding of what the church is to be and what the church is to do on the earth. Very quickly, you know, when we observe scripture, we can observe this kind of solidarity and distinctiveness of the people of God. And uh, it had a lot to do with the spirit that was upon them and also the manner to which they live, but also the call and mission that they embrace together as a community. So last week we spoke about the church being a body, right? Being a family. That the church isn't a building go to, isn't an event or an experience that you consume. It is the people of God. And I think it's important and crucial for us to dive further into this because for many of us, we have a narrow view of what the church is to be and by extension, our role as Christians here on the earth. And perhaps it has to do with the way the gospel was presented to you, that you're a sinner, you need Jesus, get saved, and then wait for heaven, wait to die, basically. But I think that though it's accurate and though that really captures much of what the gospel is. It is an incomplete gospel. And so what happens is that many Christians, after their salvation experience, live normal lives waiting to go to heaven. And every now and then we wonder what our purpose on earth is, but that eventually fades away once the busyness of life creeps up. But the church isn't just to exist as a community of people awaiting either death or Jesus' second coming, whatever comes first. But we are here on earth for a purpose. And so we even explore the words of scripture today from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this of the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priest with a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this verse is specifically to those who 
are now saved, being grafted into a family, being grafted into God's kingdom, that we are, as God's people, to proclaim the excellencies of His name. Think about that. That is such a stellar call. And so how can we do that? How can we be the church that the Bible envisions, that God has in mind? How can we proclaim the excellencies of His name while we are on the earth? And so it's with that that we come back to a definition that we uh, wrote out uh, last week on what the church is to be. And so this is a definition. The church is an embodied community that's gathered around the person of Christ, submitted to spiritual authority, committed to God's purposes, and practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of our world. It is a mission-minded, multi-generational family of faith. And I'd like to put it to you this morning that we are not just a family or community of believers that exist to just be with one another. We are a family that is on a mission together, on God's mission together. And so for this morning, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of the church being a missional people. So we let us begin with a word of prayer as we jump into God's word together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together in a manner like this. And God, we thank you that even in this inconvenience and discomfort, you have lessons in store for us. And God, we thank you that even in a place of, of great trial, tragedy and challenge, God, we can encounter and come face to face with your glory and your goodness. So God, we ask that even while we gather in this manner and, and look to you in this time, we ask that you speak to us in a fresh new way. Give us insight into what you have in mind for your church this day. We love you and thank you. All these things we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I remember a few years ago, I was on a mission trip. And on this mission trip, I had the privilege of speaking in a couple of churches. And after I was done speaking in a particular service, I remember my message was something along the lines of the kingdom of God invading earth and how God wants us to play a role in bringing His kingdom to the earth. Teachings that we've done in this church. Remember after I was done in the service, I had a girl come up to me uh, wanting to chat a bit about the message. And she just became a believer. She got saved a couple weeks before that service. And she spoke to me and she said, uh, Pastor, um, I am considering quitting my job now because I want to serve God and His kingdom. I want to be a part of His mission. I want to work for the church. And now I chatted with her a bit further and the conclusion that she came to uh, after hearing the message, after talking with several friends and leaders is that she cannot you know, fully participate in the mission of God in God's kingdom while still being at her regular job she needed to work in the church. And I think it's true for some. Some of us are called to full-time vocational ministry. But I, I got really concerned when I heard her make that statement because, you know, if that statement was true, then some 90 to 95% of believers who are not in vocational ministry now aren't pursuing the mission of God, aren't pursuing God's call in its entirety, in its fullness. And so the question I have for us today, and question I've been wrestling with is this, is the mission of God something that is to be purely traditional ministry as we know it? Is the mission of God to be purely church-based, meaning activities that happen in a hall like this, or is it to be something more? Is the rule, domain, reign and scope of God's activity sorely restricted to a gathering that lasts for two hours on a Sunday morning? Or is it something more? And so when we think of being missional, oftentimes in churches, we think of being missional as having missionaries that we support, church plants, and the occasional short-term mission trips. Those are all good, and I think it's a big part of what it means to be missional, but I believe that there's something more to the story. I have a friend who wakes up every morning, and he asks himself two questions uh, every morning, and the questions are, what is God doing, and how can I help? Ask these questions every morning when he wakes up, what are you doing, God, and how can I help? And I don't know about you, but I never ask these questions in the morning. Most of the time, the questions I wrestle with is, can I get 10 more minutes and how can I content whatever meeting I have? Or for some of you, how can I skip work and take MC today? Well, I have that friend, hyper-spiritual man, way more spiritual than I am. He asks these questions every morning. What are you doing, God, and how can I help? And these questions have uh, two uh, really stellar assumptions. And the assumption is this, that God is always working. He's always doing something in our world. And the other assumption is this, that God 
is always inviting us to be a part of his good work on the world, in the world. Now, what complicates this for us is that we often think the center of God's mission and activity is restricted and found in the four walls of a religious structure. And so instead of living intentionally on mission with those two questions, we live as what one person said, with a kind of temple spirituality. That is, we limit God's activity, the scope of his work on the earth, to a religious institution, to the four walls, the confines of a temple. Now, in the biblical times, the temple was a really important and great thing. It was the focal point. It was the physical place where heaven and earth would meet. It was a place of God's presence among his people. And so if you wanted to meet with God in that day, you would show up at the temple. Now, we read down further in scripture. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the temple. He was the temple. He came as the temple. The word used to describe Jesus was he came and tabernacled with us. Amazing language. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and he doesn't have a kind of temple spirituality. He was the temple, but he wasn't restricted or held himself to one singular location. He went all over preaching the gospel declaring the kingdom of God was at hand. He was a kind of missional temple, a temple on wheels, if you would. He was always on the move. And so we see a vast majority of Jesus' miracles on the earth done outside the church. Scripture goes on to say that you and I are now temples of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing truth that we often glance past and don't consider heavily and weightily enough. The verse is in 1 Corinthians 6, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And so we often read this verse and we think, man, I need to get fit. I need to eat more quinoa. I need to eat more kale. I need to make good, healthy choices because my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think that is good. Exercise, eat quinoa. I would skip the kale if, you, if I were you absolutely disgusting. But if we consider the implications of this verse even further and look at Jesus as our model for what it means to be a temple on the earth, it's utterly stellar. We are to, just like the temple in biblical times, be the meeting place of God's presence and his people, heaven on earth. And we are to, like Jesus, be a temple that is not restricted to a singular location, to four walls, but we are to be like Jesus the temple, going into places, extending God's kingdom, rule and reign and presence all over the earth. That is what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a fairly well-known Latin phrase used by theologians and practitioners to speak of God's mission in the world, and it's the Latin term, Messio Dei and literally means the mission of God. And it refers to the sending of God, his missionary heart for the world. It refers to Jesus being sent of the Father. And now Jesus sends the church into the world to proclaim his kingdom and his good work. That is what it means to be missional. And that's what we are referring to when we talk about being a missional people, a missional community, is to be sent by God, just like the Father sent Jesus. He now sends you and I, the church, into the world. We are not to be restricted to the four walls. Now, I will take some time to pass out a theological, biblical vision, as best as I can, of what uh, this missional imperative is and why we are called by God to be a missional people. Some of you might be wondering, hey, isn't church enough if we just, you know, do our Sunday thing, have good programs, have good kids' church, have great worship, good relevant teaching, and then people come. People come, we grow the church, it's all good, it's all fine, it's all dandy, we have a bigger church, bigger congregation, more budget, and we're able to do more things. I think that is good. That is something worth celebrating, but I don't think that's all there is to the story. As a people, we are not called to be confined and restricted to the four walls of a building, but a church in its very definition is a people called out and sent out by God into the world. The church by definition is missional. To be a unmissional or non-missional church is an absolute oxymoron. And I'll present a case for why I believe that is so shortly. Now, in the Biblical Literacy series, Pastor Jenny spoke about how the Bible is to be read. It's to be read as a unified story. 
the Bible was put together, uh, you know, through the canonization, and it involves, you know, several books and letters and all that good stuff. But oftentimes, you know, we truncate and read the Bible in chunks, and we don't understand the full narrative of Scripture, the full context of God's story. And so it's important for us to read the Bible in its entirety, first of all, Endeavor to go on a one-year Bible reading plan, read the entire Bible, but it's also for us to read the story of God in its context. Every verse, every letter, every gospel has a context, has a narrative that is part of. It's important that we understand the unified story of the Bible. Now, she goes on to elaborate that there are four parts or four chapters of the unified story of God, the unified story of God's people, the unified story of the Bible. And these four parts are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I'll say it again. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, this might not be new information for most of you, so I'll just go through this part real briefly. The first part of the story is this is creation, and this is where we uh, read in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, one Hebrew word that sums up the picture of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is this word shalom, peace. And peace is just one of the ways we can articulate what shalom means, but shalom means so much more than just peace, this pervading sense of God's presence. It means more than tranquility. Shalom means wholeness. It means uh, God brief. It means God's wholeness, desire, and intent fully established on the earth. That is what shalom means. And so the earth was full of God's shalom, the God kind of peace in which everything works according to God's intention and purpose. And the world was made for human flourishing. This is the picture we get in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And there we could live in joy in the presence of our God and make a worshipping Him, loving Him forever. It says this in God's words in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In short, we read from this text that we, as mankind, as image bearers of God, we are called to have dominion over the earth, rule and dominion. We're called to reflect the image of our Creator and the Lord when we fill and subdue and rule over the earth in holy and just ways. Now the word dominion and rule, especially in our current cultural climate, seem far too strong, far too in your face, right? And we often want to minimize those words, don't we, right? We go, yeah, no, I'm not into this dominion and rule stuff. I'm just your casual, chill kind of Christian. But the ways we see dominion and rule played out in the scripture, it has a completely different connotation and meaning. It doesn't mean to oppress or to destroy, but it means to not have a God-given desire and heart for what is good and right for all creation. Psalms 8 verse 4 to 5 says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And so in the beginning, before sin entered into the world, there was a good, just, and beautiful way that God designed and intended for humans to live out their calling. And read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, we read Psalms 8. We can see that God created us with intrinsic value and worth. It says that He has given us glory and honor. He crowns us with glory and honor. He made us to be His image bearers, to rule, to reign, to have dominion, to participate in this good work for all creation. We were designed and made with value and with a purpose. That's part one of the story, creation. We move down to part two. Now this is Genesis chapter three, the fall. And so this happens, Adam and Eve rejected God's rule over them, referred to their rebellious choice as the fall. And because they represented all of humanity, their actions affects us too. And we have through our, also no, through our attitudes and our actions declared ourselves to be God's enemy. When we sin, we 
become God's enemy. We are alienated from Him. We are alienated from His will by our own choice and devices. That is the fall. And now we hit the third chapter, redemption. Thankfully, right, the loving Creator who rightly shows Himself to be wrathful towards sin is determined to turn evil and suffering we have caused into good that will be to His ultimate glory. He puts into plan, He puts into action this great work of redemption that begins in Genesis chapter 12 and finds its fruition and completion in the work of Jesus on the cross. That is the grand narrative of Scripture, right? It climaxes with the death and resurrection of Christ our Lord who is paid for the consequence of our sin of our fall. That is the third chapter. In the fourth chapter, restoration. The story doesn't end with redemption. As glorious as the cross, as the resurrection of Christ is, the story doesn't end there, ladies and gentlemen. God has promised us through Scripture to renew the whole world because of sin, because of our rebellion, the world, our culture is broken, it's fractured. It is in need of the good creator to come back in the story, to bring all things into wholeness, into shalom once again, into a kind of renewal. And he invites us into that story. Now this restoration starts with Jesus and then the church, and then it picks up speed all the way in the book of Revelations. The restoration of all things will come when Christ returns to judge sin and evil and He will usher in a reign of righteousness and peace, God will purge this world of every pain, every suffering, every injustice forevermore. That is the story of the scripture. We read in Revelation chapter 21 that when God comes in His glory, He is going to establish what He calls a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a holy city, the new Jerusalem, that will come down from heaven. And we will be with God. It says that God's dwelling place will be among His people. He will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For all these old things will pass away. Now, it's a whole chunk of stuff that I covered, but I want to take you to this point. Notice that the story of the Bible doesn't end with a bunch of disembodied souls in heaven singing Amazing Grace for all eternity. That to me sounds a bit terrifying. It doesn't end there, right? The story of the Bible climaxes with a garden-like city here on earth where human beings rule and reign with Christ where we previously thought that life after death looked like going to heaven and enjoying our mansions, the biblical vision of life in eternity is one where we rule and reign with Christ on earth. His kingdom will be fully realized on earth. Heaven is not some opaque, beige, muji-like kind of place. It is beautiful, it is magnificent, it is bejeweled, it is luxurious. It's a thriving metropolis, a garden-like city, here on earth. That is the story of the Bible. And now if you study church history, we'll know that for over 1800 years, the grand biblical narrative of this four chapter gospel, that's what we're going to call it, four chapter gospel, was taught by the church. But in the last two centuries, many churches have reduced it to a two gospel story, namely just the fall and redemption. And this is the story that most of us know. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about it being as such, we were born sinners, we sin, we rebel against God. Jesus is graceful enough. He dies for our sin. We accept Him. We are converted. And now we are redeemed and we await a heavenly home. That is what the gospel would uh, mean or would, would uh, kind of come to mind you know, when, when, when it's proclaimed and said, it's just a fall and redemption. And so using this approach, the gospel is just divided into these two parts, right? And while the two-chapter gospel is utterly and entirely true. It is an incomplete story. The two-chapter two chapter gospel does not tell us why we are created. It doesn't talk about our design, purpose, or the intent that God has for His people. The two-chapter gospel does not tell us about our ultimate destiny and purpose as believers. Two-chapter gospel tends to overemphasize the individualistic aspects of salvation. Salvation becomes only about us and our personal well-being. And the two-chapter gospel tends to lead to an escapist view of redemption, namely we confess, we convert, we try to convert others, and we escape 
hell and we go to heaven. That is what most would understand the gospel to be. But if you read the Bible in its entirety and understand the unified story of scripture, God's grand narrative that is put into action, it will be an utterly different worldview to which we'll adopt. The fourth chapter gospel reminds humanity of its dignity because it points out that we were created by the creator in God's image, in his image to reflect his worth to reflect his will. We were imbued with worth and with value, crowned with glory and honor. It also tells us of our role. It tells us that we're made in God's image. We possess the creativity of the creator and we are now called to bring his will, his redeeming work into all of creation. That is what our story is. That is what the people of God is. We are created with purpose, with intent to bring to fruition all of God's desires, purposes, and plans for our world. To put it plainly, the gospel is not an evacuation project. It's not a call for us to escape the earth. The gospel is not an evacuation project. It is a call to transfigure a lost and broken world. And so I, I apologize, you know, I've just taken a whole lot of time. It's really lengthy, but it's really pertinent and important stuff. And so what are the implications of all that I just passed out and said to you? The first implication is this, that every Christ follower is a minister. We are all called to be ministers. We are all called to partner God's mission, to take on God's mission, to partner with good work on the earth. Ministry is not to be limited to just the clergy or really interested people. We are all called to be ministers, propagators of God's gospel and kingdom work. Coming back to Ephesians chapter 4 again, the church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We often get that order wrong where we think that, hey, it's only the, the church people or the pastors, the clergy who are doing ministry while the rest of the saints benefit. No, the Bible tells us that the church we exist to equip all of y'all, all of us, for the work of ministry. That's the first implication. Second implication is this, that every workplace, home, and school is a field of opportunity. God wants us to have dominion, to rule, reign, serve, and bless all of creation. Meaning that it is kind of cosmic in scope, right? This kind of blessing is not to be limited to just what we do here on a Sunday morning, but we are to bless all of creation, all of the world. This is what we are called to do as a church, meaning that what we do at work, at school, at home, has the potential to impact and to establish and advance God's kingdom. And we often have drawn lines, right? You know, we draw lines between what is sacred and what is secular. We call what we do on Sunday sacred and what we do from eight to five in our workplaces as secular. But the Bible doesn't draw that definition or that distinction. It calls us to be sacred people, people who are temples of the Holy Spirit. And wherever we go, by our very presence in those places, that those places becomes uh, uh, potential uh, places where God's presence can be felt and where His kingdom can be established. You know, in the Old Testament, when you were to touch a leper, you were considered unclean and dirty. But in the New Testament, when Jesus came onto the scene, whenever he touched lepers, they were clean. And that is what it means to be a New Testament church, a New Testament body. Hey, we don't get unclean when we touch things that were dirty, but now because of the work of the Spirit in us through the blood of Jesus, we get to go into places of darkness, of evil, of injustice to bring forth the sacredness, the holiness of God in those places. And the last implication is this, that all that we do with our lives, our jobs, our parenting, our relationships, has the potential to contribute towards God's mission. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read this, so what, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that an amazing verse that all that we do, our work, our service, our parenting, our relationships, we get to do all these things for the glory of God. Previously, it was thought of as just an animal sacrifice, but now because of the new covenant, because God has given us dominion over all creation, and we are called to establish the boundaries of His kingdom, we get to offer Him sacrifices in every sphere, in every regard, in every realm. We get to do all things for the glory of God. That is amazing news. I have one more verse to run through before I end this time. Genesis chapter 12. Let's read this together. 
The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Now we left off last week talking about God's people, His church, as a family. That's His desire for His people to exist as a family. But we're not to be just any kind of family. We are a family on a mission on a, with a purpose. And so here in Genesis chapter 12, we read of God's vision and mission for His people. God speaks to the people of God under Abraham, who later become Israel. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the boundary lines gets extended. It now includes Gentiles and it becomes the church. He speaks to them and gives them a vision, a mission for what they are to do on planet Earth in Genesis 12. He says this, that you are to bless the world. He says, I will bless you and then in turn, you will be a blessing. All peoples will be blessed through you. And so here we read in uh, this text that the people of God exist as a kind of conduit, medium, or an agent of God's uh, blessing to the world. We stand at the interface between God and His people. We receive from God His blessings so that we may be able to bless the world around us. And this is what we mean by the language of mission. Let us say that the people of God, we have a mission, we have a purpose, we have a calling, we have a task, and that is to bless the world. And we see this theme consistent all through Scripture. The way God wants to bring healing and restoration to all of creation is through His people, is through a people. It started with Abraham, then Israel, and now the church. God wants to bless and touch all of creation through a people. And let us say that God wants to use in that day, Israel to bless the world. Another way to put it, the point of Israel was not Israel. The point of Israel was so that people of all the earth would be blessed. And so, to put it another way, the point of the church isn't the church. The church is a means to an end. We exist to be a blessing to the world. We exist to participate in God's mission. Christopher Wright, a theologian that has written much on the mission of God, puts it succinctly. He says this, It's not so much the case that God has a mission for His church in the world, as that God has a church for His mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. Mission means the committed participation of God's people in the purposes of God for the redemption of the whole creation. The mission is God's. The marvel is that God invites us to join Him. To put it even more plainly, the church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. God's mission involves having a company of people to exist as a conduit, as an agent, as a medium for His blessing to the entire world. That's what we exist to as a church. To be a missional people means we participate in God's mission, in His redemptive work to bless all of creation, capturing our purpose and our intent that we find in Genesis chapter 1 in the opening page of Scripture, that we're called to rule and to have dominion over all creation so that all the earth may be blessed by the glory of God. And so I'd like to close off with three practical ways that we can participate in the mission of God. And of course, this subject is lengthy, it's vast. Theologians have uh, you know, committed to writing books of a thousand pages to explore and expound on this topic. Uh, this, uh, if you're interested, is Pastor Janice's favorite topic, and so she will definitely be back up here, uh, really excited to expound more on this subject, and so we can be uh, looking forward to her doing so. But I'd just like to leave you with three ways that we are called uh, to participate, to uh, be a part of God's mission on the earth. The first uh, way we participate with the mission of God is this, that we stand up for Injustice, we stand up against injustice, we stand up for justice. And I won't go too deep into this. We have a bunch of messages, we ran an entire conference on the subject. But the word for justice in the Bible is the Hebrew word mishpat. And uh, theologian uh, sums up mishpat as to establish the heavenly norm or pattern on the earth. And so justice in its essence is restoring all things to the way God intended for things to be. It is right order. And so when we stand up, 
for the oppressed, when we serve the marginalized, when we pursue justice, we aren't just meeting human need, as important as that is. We are heralding, we are giving the earth a foretaste of God's coming kingdom, where every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow. The injustices of our world will cease in that day. When we pursue justice, we give the world a foretaste of what right order, or what kingdom order is to look like. The second way we participate in God's mission is through meaningful work, through our work, through our jobs. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, as a writer, once said, how can anyone remain interested in religion that seemed to have no concern with nine-tenths of a person's life? Can I put it to you that God is extremely concerned with what you do during the week? Your work, your job, your vocation is to be an instrument and a tool for God's kingdom to be established and expressed in our world. Every Christian is designed by God to produce work of meaning and substance in our world. As Christians, we are invited to go beyond just having meaningful, fulfilling careers to having a sense of vocation, a sense of a kind of God-ordained calling. Because our workplaces get the best hours of our day and our most productive energy, so the primary way we serve God, we establish and advance His kingdom is actually through our work, through our jobs. In uh, his book, Wishful Thinking, Frederick Bigner writes, Our calling is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, meaning the place of our great fulfillment and the world's greatest need, areas of real lack. These, when these two things meet, it is often the, the place where our calling uh, happens, where our calling is fulfilled. So, with all that being said, Christians don't just ask ourselves, right? How can I get a meaningful career that maximizes my own personal well-being and flourishing? What industry or company would best let me reach my full potential? Instead, Christians, Christ followers, ought to ask, how can I heal and renew the world through my gifts and my vocation? How has God uniquely designed me to join Him in the work that He is doing? That means that there will be times where we choose to make less money, to do things that are more meaningful and more renewing? Or this means that we consciously take a job that makes more money so that we can consciously contribute to the ministry of others. That might mean moving to a city in order to serve a community uh, that, that comes from a sense of calling. That, mean, that might mean choosing jobs that enable to stay in a particular, particular place. The point of all these decisions is this, that Christians are meant to have a conscious filter which seeks first the kingdom of God. That is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. And so pertaining to our work, we ought to ask, how does what I do all week not just contribute to my own personal flourishing, but to the renewal, the blessing of all creation? How is the kingdom work, a kingdom of God expressed in my work environment and through my work? How do I address and push against contradictions in my workplace to God's way? And what does it look like for God's kingdom to invade my world? And how can I help? You know, I think of this story of the artisans of Constantinople, and these are not a well-known bunch, but a number of them, you know, today are still unknown, and they are responsible for the art and beauty of the Church of Constantinople, which is known to bear the greatest beauty the world has seen in that day. And they painted amazing works and built structures of great beauty because they saw that the Creator was worthy of more than just a dull building. He was worthy of something beautiful, a work of art. And we read a story of a thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great, uh, the pagan monarch of Kiev, was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian Empire. And towards this end, Prince Vladimir sent envoys all around the world to study the major world religion in order for him to discover and investigate the great faiths of the neighboring realms so that he may determine and decide on a unifying new religion for Russia. Now, when the delegations returned, they gave the prince their reports, and some had discovered religions that were... Uh, kind of weird, and some had encountered religions that were really abstract and theoretical. But the envoys who investigated Christianity in Constantinople reported finding a faith characterized by such transcendent beauty that they did not know whether they were in heaven or on earth. And this is a report from one of the envoys. He said, Then we went to Constantinople, and they led us to the place where they worshipped their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth, for on earth there is no such vision of beauty. And we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men. We cannot forget that beauty. 
And now upon, upon receiving that report from the envoys uh, that went to Constantinople, Prince Vladimir uh, adopted Christianity as a new faith for the Russian people. Now, what impressed, uh, note this, what impressed the envoys and persuaded Prince Vladimir to embrace Christianity was not its apologetics or ethics, but it was its aesthetics, its beauty, its art. Thus, we might say it was beauty, it was art, it was the work of the artisans of Constantinople that brought salvation to the Russian people. 900 years later, the great Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky would coin the expression, beauty would save the world, beauty would save the world. And I don't think at that point in time, the artists knew that their work would lead to the salvation of an entire nation. They were faithful and excellent in their craft, and it revealed the beauty of their creator. And reminded in the Bible of a man named Bezalel, and Bezalel was a crossman, and uh, he was the first man in the Bible to be filled with the Spirit. Now in biblical hermeneutics, you will look at uh, something called the principle of the first mention, and whenever a concept or a verse or a word is first mentioned in the Bible, it kind of sets precedence for the rest of the times it occurs in the Bible. So Bezalel was the first man in all of Scripture to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was a crossman. The Bible tells us it was crossmen building uh, works, uh, engaging in all sorts of crafts and artistic designs to build the tabernacle. And this was the first account of someone being filled with the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit in order to do his job, in order to do a work. And now, can you imagine what it will look like for the Spirit of God to come upon you Whatever your vocation, whatever your job is, be it in comms, be it in medicine, be it in art, creativity or design, what will it look like for the Spirit of God to come upon you, to fill you so that you may review and reflect the glory of the Creator in our world, to establish and to express His kingdom. And that was what happened to, I believe, the artisans of Constantinople. They built a wonder, a work of beauty that led to the salvation, that led to an entire nation coming to embrace our faith. I would like to say this, you know, creatives, designers, filmmakers, don't underestimate the power of your work. Perhaps some wedding album or wedding video you create saves a marriage, which allows someone to be born who goes on to greatness. Perhaps some non-profit video you create becomes instrumental in an organization raising funds. Perhaps some movie you make inspires millions to change their eating habits and thereafter save countless lives. You just never know. Don't doubt the value of what you do. Don't doubt what the Spirit can do through you for the sake of God's kingdom. And the last way we partner God in this mission on the earth is through disciple making. And we see this call in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. It says this in God's word. Then Jesus came to them, meaning his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now the word disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament. The word Christian used a meager three times. It is the dominant language used or dominant word used to describe a follower of Jesus. Disciple is basically what it means to be a Jesus people, a Jesus follower. And so when you read Matthew chapter 28, this call to disciple making, to making disciples, that comment to make disciples is closer to evangelism as supposed to one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And I don't think Jesus here was commanding his disciples to meet people one-on-one -on -one in coffee shops and go through material. He was calling them to evangelize, to call for more people to follow Christ, to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, had come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell and to renew all things. And that is the gospel. And this gospel, this wonderful gospel, is entrusted to us, God's people. And we get to partner with God in living it out, enjoying it, but also in proclaiming it to all the world. Magician and atheist Penn Gillette once said in an interview, responding to an occasion that 
uh, of a time where a fan came up to me and handed him a Bible. He said this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. That word means to evangelize. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it will make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you and this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest and sane and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. Now in my book, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who talk to complete strangers on the airplane and there are normal people. I fall under the normal category. And I read of a story once where a pastor was sitting next to a lady in a plane. This pastor was an extrovert, really fond of talking to strangers. And he started talking to this woman about uh, his faith, about uh, being a Christ follower. And he preached the gospel to her. And the woman at one point uh, was really uh, stirred and moved and spellbound by the presentation of the gospel. And now what uh, she said, uh, next, and what she said after presentation of the gospel has haunted me uh, for all these months since I heard the story. She said this to the pastor, If what you're saying is true, and I have Christian friends, why is the f this the first time I'm hearing of this? Uh, now, just let that sit in for just a moment. She said this to the pastor, If what you're saying is true, meaning the gospel is entirely true, and I have Christian friends, why is this the first time I'm hearing of this? Now let us sit in and sink in for a moment and let us reflect if we truly comprehend and affirm the urgency of the hour and the potency of our gospel. Do we actually believe in the words of Jesus in the gospel? Do we actually believe in this idea of eternity? Do we actually believe that the gospel is to be preached to all the world? Do we actually believe that the hour is urgent. And perhaps we need to desperately recapture this vision of being a missional people for our world because the state of our world of souls are dependent on it. Do we hunger to see radical conversions in our day? Or even just taking a step back, do we hunger to see people coming out of darkness into light? If you can be honest for just a moment, most of church growth today is a result of Christians who have moved from one church to the other. First world church planting strategy has been reduced to how we can get people who are discontent about other churches excited about our vision and our programs. And for most part, a lot of church planting in urban cities look like that looks like attracting people who are disgruntled, disillusioned with their current church experience into our church. Now, I'm not saying that that is a bad thing or something to be dismissed. You know, many people find their faith renewed and revitalized in a fresh new church experience. But what I'm saying is this, that there is something better. And what is better is when the church grows through conversion and not through transfer. It's when multitudes who are far from God hear the good news of the gospel and the church grows by people coming out of darkness into God's light. The role of the church is not to build a bigger church with its own isolated culture, but to preach the gospel and make disciples who are formed, equipped and sent into the world to partner with God's mission to be a blessing to the world. We are meant to be formed into the image of Jesus, learning to love and obey Him with all of our beings and being sent out to every part of our world culture to influence and bring change. The church should not get excited about how many more important people we have in our congregation, but the church should rather get excited about how many people are actually being sent out to accomplish God's purpose. Because simplistically, being a missional people is asking those two questions my friend asks himself every morning. What is God doing? What are you up to God? And how can I help? That is the biblical vision. It is not that we will live with either comfort or exhaustion, but that we will follow Jesus' direction in pouring out our whole lives for what really matters, His kingdom, His good work. So this is my pastoral heart for all of you. This is what I wish and dream for all of you. Not that you will live a good life, but that you will live a life obedient to the call of God, obedient to the voice of God, that you'll be faithful with your resource, that you'll be faithful with your talents and giftings, that you'll be faithful with whatever positions you hold, that you'll be faithful with whatever realm and sphere of influence you'll be entrusted with to be a blessing, to partner God in His mission, to bring all of creation into redemption 
and restoration. And that is what it means to be a church, is to be a missional people, to be a people that move out of the confines of the four walls of an institution, of a building. The presence of God was never meant to be restricted to a singular location, but it's meant to cover the whole earth. It says this in God's word that it is the glory of God to cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. That is a vision I hope for you to capture this morning, that all of us are called to be temples of the Holy Spirit, to be spread out all across the earth, to bring forth God's presence, His glory, His purpose, His kingdom. And that's what we're called to be, a missional people, people who are partnered and submitted to the mission of God, the blessing of our world. And so I'd like to close off this time by inviting you to join me in a time of prayer. Perhaps this idea of partnering God on mission just sounds exhausting and tiring altogether. And I know many of you are going through really challenging times in this day. And just another vision, kind of chargy message, it just, just doesn't sound ex- exciting. It sounds more exhausting than exciting. But I'd like to suggest to you that, first of all, you know, God doesn't call you to participate in this mission with your own resource and strength. He empowers you with His Spirit. But the second thing is this, that we have to know this is what we're designed and purposed to do on the earth. I have this vacuum cleaner that I use on occasion, and uh, the other day I attached the parts wrongly, and I could hear the vacuum cleaner screaming for his dear uh, robotic life and it was heating up, and it was working really hard, and, uh, you know, after a while, you know, I could feel that it was tired, and it wasn't going as fast, and then it stopped working altogether. I'd like to put it to you that a lot of the exhaustion that you're feeling in this day is because you aren't doing what you're designed to do. The people of God, we were designed, purpose, built for God's glory, and we were designed and purpose from the dawn of creation to partner with God's mission, His good work, for our planet, to bless our world, to advance His kingdom. And so once we, once we get on board with that vision, with that mission, let me kind of assure you and let me, let me charge you today that it will make for a life of great fulfillment, gladness and joy. When we discover our calling, when we discover our role and our part in God's mission, it will bring us great fulfillment. And so let's pray until the end, shall we? Let's all come to uh, God's presence together and seek for His voice, His leading in this time. Perhaps invite Him to speak to uh, what is in your hands, you know, your jobs, your resource, your talents and giftings. Allow God to speak to you about what is in your hands or what you have access to. How can you partner with Him? How can you establish His kingdom? How can you serve His mission with what you have in your hands? I invite you to bow your heads as we enter in a time of prayer together. Father, we thank You for Your mission. Lord, we recognize that it is what you've created us to do, to partner with your mission. Lord, we thank you from the dawn of creation, you have given us intrinsic value, worth, but also a purpose. And God, today as your creation, as your sons and daughters, we recognize what you have in mind for all of us. You have called us to bless this earth, this world that we're in. And God, we pray today that you speak to us whatever is in our hands, whatever we have access to, with whatever we are able to do. God, speak to us of how we may advance your kingdom, express your will, your desire to our world. God, help us move away from self-centered thinking, self-preservational tendencies, and help us dream and desire to be a part of your story, to be a part of your work in our world. And today we ask the questions, God, what are you doing in our world and how can we help? We pray that you speak to us this day. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.